Jesus, the Lamb, is truly worthy. You can be seated. Praise the Lord for the Lamb, Christ Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 11. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 11. And look with me at verse 11. Last week, we started our series on the Passion Week. The final week of our Lord's Jesus' earthly ministry and bodily form, Jesus is working now. Jesus is alive. Don't ever think that this is the end of Jesus' ministry. No, no, no. Jesus continues to serve and work, but in bodily form, He's with the Father at the right hand. And so He works and moves today by His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. But today I want us to look at the next day. Last week we looked at what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. That was a day of declaration. Jesus is declaring openly that He is the Son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. And He is still that heir and occupies that throne in heaven. And one day He'll occupy it on this earth in bodily form in Jerusalem. But it was a day of declaration, how that Jesus declared himself to be Messiah by his actions. Now, we come to the next day, this would be Monday. Guess what? A week doesn't start on Monday, a week starts on Sunday. I got a pet peeve with all the calendars of the world here lately. Have you noticed that? That always Sunday is the last day of the week. I can't. Just a small pet peeve. I won't charge you for that little comment. But it's the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. So we find ourselves on the next day, which would be Monday. And this in, in following in Mark 11, verse number 11. We'll read down through verse number 20. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about upon all things and now the evening tide was come and he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Let me, let me, let me uh, fix that right now. This is referring to that first day Jesus comes in. We looked at his, his Palm Sunday, his entry into Jerusalem and verse number 11 is the follow-up. It's what happened the rest of that day. Jesus went into the temple, he looked around, and resorted to Bethany. Now verse number 12. On the morrow, this would be that Monday, when they were come from Bethany, he, meaning Jesus, was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having, uh, uh, having leaves, he came. If aptly, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. He And he taught saying unto them, Is, is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it 
a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. In the morning, look at this, in the morning as they passed by. So this is Tuesday, the next day. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Last week we looked at a day of declaration. Today, I want us to call this a day of investigation. A day of investigation. Jesus is investigating the fig tree. Jesus is investigating the temple courtyard. And I want us to take and draw applications from this scene with the Lord Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you gave us so much detail of this final week. And there are so many lessons for our lives about the Lord Jesus and our relationship to Him that God are made clear in these passages of Scripture. And so, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would come and that He would make application to our own hearts and lives. God, we pray for those that may be here lost without the Lord Jesus. God, may the gospel be clear that we preach. God, may, may, may the truth of real, genuine salvation be seen in this text. And not a profession, but a possession. God, guide my tongue. Help me to say that which is right in, in collaboration with your word, with the scriptures. By your spirit, help me to make the, the right spiritual application on our souls. God, feed us, chasten our hearts this morning. Help us to do honest gut-level inspection, investigation of our own hearts. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. A 17-year-old high school student, in order to graduate, had to write an essay on a religious subject. He chose the subject of the union of believers with Christ Jesus as shown in the Gospel of John. I want to share with you a quote from what this young man wrote at 17 years of age. Listen to what he says, quote, Our heart, reason, history, and the work of Christ convince us that without Him we are doomed by God and only Christ can save us. Now you would have to agree with me that someone that would be able to write such a statement with such clear understanding would have a great grasp of just what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. These thoughts from a 17-year-old reveal one with a spiritual wisdom beyond his age. These words from one that had these are words from one that had been baptized at the age of six into the Lutheran church and confirmed at the age 16. Now, you may not know much about confirmation, but oftentimes they would, in, in some of the more liturgical denominations, they would baptize their young very early, I believe, 
in a misunderstanding of what baptism is. Nevertheless, that's been disputed for thousands of years. I get it. And so they would baptize them at a young age, but to ensure that they had an understanding of the gospel, that it indeed had embraced Christ as Savior, they would have something called confirmation, a series of classes. And basically at the end to pass the class, you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's meant by confirmation. So this young man was baptized in the Lutheran church at, 16, uh, at 6 years old, was confirmed at 17, and wrote this highly uh, theological statement in his paper at age 17. These are words not only from one that had been baptized and confirmed, but these are the words from a young man by the name of Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Just nine years after writing these words, he, had a, he would abandon any Christian commitment that he may have had at one time. He would go on to become the world's most influential atheist. His ideas would spawn through the Soviet Union in Russia and the communist movement around the world, one of the greatest epics of human history, of human misery and death in the history of mankind. What appeared to be in Karl Marx's life was not what truly was. From the outside, from his writings, everything that he portrayed at this, at 17 years old, one would have thought that this young man had the makings of a faithful Christian minister or at least a Christian educator of some sorts. But the investigation of divine eyes knew the truth that all the outward religious garments are no replacement for true spiritual reality. God knew. What was in Karl Marx's heart was not... He knew what was in his heart even though outwardly no one could have seen that coming. No one could have seen it from the outside. Yet that was what happened on the second day of Jesus' Passion Week. Jesus came into the very heart of the Hebrew religious world and performed an investigation into the reality of their faith. What he found revealed a sharp, a stark contrast between an outward show of religious form and an inward substance of real faith. You see, to us, that look upon this day's events from nearly 2,000 years later, there is a glaring question. If Jesus were to make a visit to my heart, if He were to come and perform an investigation into my life, what would He find? Would He find form or fruit? Would he see trappings or truth? Would he reveal deception or devotion? Every one of us can know what Jesus would find upon an investigation of our own lives by looking closely at these two portions of this very meaningful day. 
Because see, both of them are related. What Jesus did in that temple is not completely unrelated to the cursing and what he found at that fig tree. These two are related. And I want to show you how in just two points, all right? Number one, the first thing I want you to see is this, the meaning of the cursed tree. Obviously, in this passage of Scripture, there is somewhat of an enigmatic story of Jesus that to our modern sensibilities may not make a lot of sense. Here, at the start of this day, Jesus is making His way into the city from Bethany, a place of safety. Of course, Bethany was where Mary and Martha and Lazarus resided, right outside Jerusalem, about a mile or so outside of Jerusalem. This was a place of Jesus' closest friends. This was a place of safety for Him. And so, as he, a place of relaxation. So, as the morning dawned on that second day, Jesus walked into the city, and there's this curious story of a fig tree. A fig tree that had all the markings of having fruit, but none was found on it. We know, uh, I, was ta- or I was talking to a friend years ago. This was, uh, I had preached through this passage when I preached verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And I was on this fig tree story and then also the following story about the money changers. And I was, I was telling my friend how that you know Jesus cursed the fig tree and actually the fig tree just weathered up and died by the next day. And then he went in there and he's turning tables over and pitching a fit in the outer courtyard. And my friend said to me, man, it just sounds like Jesus was having a bad day. Isn't it like us sometimes have a bad day just cursing this and throwing this up and, We might deduce that that this might look like a bad day. And if you look at it just from its outward reading, it's pretty close to that. But everything that Jesus did, and this is so important, when you read your Bible and you read things that may not make sense in the eyes of your reading, they may not exactly uh, be completely understandable. I want you to understand something. Everything Jesus did is packed with meaning and significance. There's nothing that we, if it's recorded in this, there's nothing we should say, ah, you're better off not to read that. That, That'll just, no. Everything that he did with his disciples in his life, uh, through the days of this final week, everything was packed with meaning. So when we look at this story of the fig tree, we just can't roll our eyes and say, well, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. It just seems like uh, that uh, Jesus here is is, uh, in a bad mood. He's hungry and there's nothing there. And he zaps the tree for no reason and uh, it never bears fruit again. Listen, there is a spiritual lesson to see here and I want you to understand that. But because there's a cultural significance. And we'll see this in a second. But first thing, I want you to see an appearance of spiritual growth. An appearance of spiritual growth. Now, before we dive into the spiritual growth aspect of this story, I want you to see the phrase at the end of verse number 12. He was hungry. You know, it's easy when you read the gospel accounts to glibly run over phrases like this 
but we should mark them with significance because the truth of the matter is it is something that we should stand in awe of. Jesus was hungry. He was, he, this is the one who described himself as the bread of life for all men, and yet he was hungry. Jesus is the one that could take the small lunch of a little boy and multiply it and feed 5,000 people at one time, and yet he was hungry. He called all men to himself and said, Come and drink of him, and yet on the cross he cried out, I, I thirst. He who called the weary and heavy laden to rest in Him was Himself so weary that He fell asleep on a stormy night in the back of a boat. He was the God-man. He was God. He is God. He became flesh just like you and I, yet without sin. Never forget that Jesus is... Is, is not separated from us to such a degree that he cannot empathize with hunger and sorrow and weariness and tiredness. Those things that you encounter every day progressively more and more as life goes on. Don't think those are out of reach for Jesus to understand because Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. He knows what it's like to hunger, to thirst, to be weary, all of these things of the human experience. And yet he, and he can identify with us, and yet without sin. He became one of us that He might die for us. But in His hunger, Jesus, as He goes into this city, He sees this fig tree. Now, Mark tells us that this was not, uh, was not the time for figs to come. Did you catch that? At the end of verse number 13, it's Mark said, For the time of figs was not yet. Now it seems by that statement that Mark is saying that Jesus' anger or Jesus' frustration at that tree was out of line. Was something that Jesus, why would you expect there to be fruit? It's not the time for fig trees to have fruit. But I want you to understand something. Uh, Dr. Ivor Powell, uh, the, the man from Wales, evangelist from years ago, I think I heard him preach when I was younger. Brilliant preacher, but in his commentary on Matthew, said that in eastern countries, the figs on those fig trees would often appear before the leaves would appear on the tree. Meaning that if you're walking along and you see a fig tree full of leaves near that time of the season when figs were, you could assume that for whatever reason, fertilization, the right maybe extra water or climate, for whatever reason, that tree with all those leaves should have fruit on it because oftentimes the fruit came even before the leaves. So you're, you're, you can make this deduction. If you've seen the fig tree with all kind of leaves on it, then you're going to know naturally it's got, there's fruit under those leaves. It's, it's there. It should, it should draw you to it more than repel you. 
by looking at the calendar and saying, nah, it's not time for figs. No, it's got all the leaves. It should have figs on it. So when we understand that this tree was filled with leaves, it's easy then to expect there to be fruit. And yet, there was none. Jesus is walking in like that tree in the back. Looks like all kinds of leaves on it. He sees a fig tree with leaves on it. Obviously, there's supposed to be fruit on that tree if it's got leaves by now. If it's got that many leaves, it's supposed to have fruit. And yet, he goes over and finds none. It had everything outwardly to indicate that there was fruit on these limbs, and yet there was nothing behind it. This is an object lesson of a false profession. A false profession. In essence, Jesus was giving an illustration of the state of Israel. Here's the comparison. There is a fig tree out front that has leaves. It has every indication from the outside. Just looking at it from the outside, it looks like it has what it was born to do, have fruit on it. But when you pull back those leaves, you find nothing. Nothing satisfying, nothing edifying, nothing helpful. It is not producing what it intended to, what was intended for it to produce. Israel has become the same thing. When he goes into the temple, and we're going to look at the temple in a minute. When he goes into the temple, from the outside, this wonderful edifice of worship surrounded by millions of people would have been some kind of indication that something miraculous and wonderful is going on in that building. But when he goes inside and he's in that outer courtyard, he finds nothing but, de but uh, deception, defilement, disgrace, law-breaking. No, Jesus found that the outside didn't match the inside just like he saw with the tree. The outside did not match the inside. Here is a fig tree with, with outwardly has every indication of satisfying fruit and there is none. Now this is a spiritual comparison to many a church. Many a church member. They have all the trappings of being Christian. All the trappings of being a spiritual place. Uh, these people may be moral, they may be decent, they may be caring and generous, but there is no vital faith in Jesus Christ. There's never been true conversion, true birth, new birth in Christ Jesus. There is no inward spiritual life. You know how I know this? Because that was me. From nine years old when I made a false profession until I was 21 years old, I was a tree that looked like it should have had fruit. I, not so hard. That's so hard with you. Amen. I mean, I'm a fairly good kid. You know. Anyway, no, no, I was rotten to the core. 
from the 9 to 21, I could play the part, I could say the right thing, I could have all the outward trappings that would make you think that I'm a good little Baptist, that everything is hunky-dory with me, that as soon as I escaped this earth, I would tread the streets of glory, but I would have busted hell wide open. I had everything on the outside, but nothing on the inside. I could look the part with the best of them, but never had Jesus' life within me. Had all the appearance of spiritual growth, but no reality of growth inwardly. An appearance of spiritual growth. An absence of spiritual fruit. This fruit tree from the outside looked like it had fruit, but when the leaves were raised, there's nothing a fruit to be found. The true life of a tree within will be manifest in fruit that it bears. Would you not agree with that? The Bible is clear that evidence of true salvation is the bearing of spiritual fruit. Matter of fact, Jesus said, although He is taking this in the negative sense, to be honest with you, I believe it bears truth. We see that we'll see this in a moment. Bears truth throughout the New Testament in a positive sense. Jesus said of the false prophets, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. A lot of people go around saying, Don't judge me. You can't judge me. Uh, have, you seen that? <laughs> have you seen that meme that's going around? You know, it has this girl up here in one portion of it says, You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Judge me. And then there's a guy at the bottom going, that should scare you that God would judge you. But you've heard those people say, you know, you can't judge me. Nobody can judge me. And they're right to a certain extent. I cannot judge the motivations of a person's heart. I cannot peer into that which is unseen, unspoken, unlived out. I cannot, you know, it's the same... We do it all the time too. And, and listen, we need to be careful of it. In our own hearts, we say, here's how we do it. This is a false judgment. This is how we can't judge. I know why she did that when she never said why she did such and such. I know why he did this when they never said it. They never made it particularly clear to you. That is a thing that we cannot cross. You don't know the mind of somebody else. You don't know somebody else's motivations. You don't, know, you don't know what's going on in their mind and what they're thinking through and what God's doing in the background. I would agree in many instances I cannot judge you, but I can judge fruit. What's hanging on the outside? I can judge fruit. My pastor once said in his message, you may have the leaves of religion, but yet not have the fruit of salvation. And man, that's true. You can bear all the leaves in the world and look saved and not be saved. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Those characteristics are fruit. If it is be, if your life, no matter how religious 
you may be produces in a consistent manner the works of the flesh that I just read off. I have every right, every recourse to say, you're not saved. In a consistent manner. I'm not talking about a failure and a faltering. That we can get in a ditch on both sides on this subject. But I am saying this. If there is a consistent application of these, these characteristics in someone's life, I have every right to question whether a person is saved at all. But, if your life produces a desire for God, a love for Jesus Christ, an earnest longing to obey God, a desire to repent and be rightly related to God when we have faltered. I have every reason to characterize your life as someone that has been that has experienced God, that knows Jesus in saving faith. Listen to what Galatians says, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This is divine fruit. This is what we long to be produced in our lives. You know, some of us may have problems with patience, you know, and, and some of us may struggle in certain areas of forgiveness from time to time and, and, and different aspects of them. But at the same time, if these are our longing of our heart, our desire is to bear that kind of fruit. Listen, that is something that only, that just doesn't happen by the inward nature. That's unnatural. That is a mark of spiritual occupation, of this occupation of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, a desire to do what's right according to God's Word, a desire and a love for Jesus, a desire to yield our life. That's the mark of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And the, the uh, absence of, but the absence of spiritual fruit is just like this fig tree. It has all the trappings on the outside to make it look like it has fruit, but it doesn't have any at all. That's what we need to be concerned about when we look at this fig tree. Notice, thirdly, an announcement of spiritual death. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And by morning, verse 20, in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up by the roots. This tree went through a drastic condemnation, a drastic punishment. Jesus' response to the deceptive fruitless tree was that announcement. Uh, in Matthew 21, 19, Jesus said, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Even Matthew puts it even closer to what happened. It immediately withered up. Let us be clear with what Jesus is showing us here. If there is no fruit resulting from the life within the tree, then there is only death. If there is no fruit... There's death. Without the spiritual life imparted to us by God, at the moment of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are dead. Dead things don't produce nothing. Dead people laying in a graveyard 
uh, don't craft and just shoot the crafts out of the grave. You know, they're not doing nothing down there. They're dead. They don't produce nothing. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that outside of Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sin. 1 Timothy 5.6, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. What a, what a picture there. Dead while they live. They can't produce fruit. You may be physically alive and yet be spiritually dead before God. And this death was eventually manifest before the world. We saw in our text. Jesus cursed that tree. He sped along the death that was already in that tree for all the world to see. You know, Matthew 7 reveals a similar truth in the eternal experience of professors and not possessors. Listen to these grave words from the Lord Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21-23 Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What an illustration, what a picture, what a, an exact uh, um, exegete of this parable of the fig tree here that we see in the life of Jesus. Condemnation to those that had all the trappings but no, no spiritual life within. This is a grave warning to those who think that they approve themselves to God by their works, by their kindness, by their giving, by their affable and kind nature present themselves and say, well, I'm a Christian. Look how nice of a person I am. Look at all what I do. Look at all what I give. I have to be a Christian. There may be leaves that look like life, but inwardly their lack of genuine spiritual fruit reveals a spiritual death within. That's the meaning of the cursed fig tree. To not only Israel, it was an illustration, it was, a, it was a picture of Israel outside on a tree, but it's also something for us to wrestle with. Am I a Christian? I don't care if I've been pastoring since uh, 2007. I don't care if I've been a, a, a declared Christian since 1994. Make your calling and election sure. Listen, a lot of people will say, well, never question the fact whether you're saved or not. I contend that the Scripture makes no kind of suggestion like that. We are to make it sure, continue. Am I growing in holiness? Am I being made more like the Lord Jesus? Am I pursuing Him? Do I love Jesus? Is Jesus precious to me? These aspects we should ask ourselves all the time. I want to know for sure that I'm not some fig tree that has all the trappings on the outside that looks religious, but in reality, I am not producing anything. The meaning of the cursed tree. Then the message of the cleansed temple. That's 15 through 19. Now, look back with me at verse number 11. This goes back to Sunday. So we have Sunday, Jesus came in on the donkey down the down the road into the gate, into Jerusalem with all the palm branches and all the fanfare, recognized as Messiah, the King of Israel. 
goes back to verse number 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the evening tide was come, he went out into, unto Bethany with the twelve. Here Jesus, this first day, he goes into the temple, no doubt into the courtyard, which he's at the next day, and he simply looks around. This was a visit that he had no doubt made many times before since he was a little boy. We know from the text what would happen and take place the next day. So he would cleanse the temple and chase out the money changers and, and create all kinds of havoc in that outer court. But notice that he, what he did in verse number 11, he did nothing. He did nothing. He resorted to Bethany. And there, no doubt, we're not told this, but I cannot see, I cannot see our heaven, our Lord Jesus, our heavenly brother, our Savior, not seeking God's face about what He should do the next day. What He's about to do in that temple could easily get Him killed. I cannot see Him not petitioning His Father for wisdom and how to deal with the situation. You know how oftentimes we go into a tirade without seeking the Lord and considering what we should do or say. You know the, the scripture admonition in Ephesians, I believe chapter number 6, Be ye angry and sin not. Here's an instance where there was a holy anger in the Lord Jesus and yet no sin was committed. How often that cannot be said of us. We may have righteous indignation. We may be rightful in our aggression and anger towards something we see in the church, without the church, in, in, in our own lives or in our own families, whatever. And we do not seek the God, our Heavenly Father's face and how to deal with them. Anger might be justified, but still, it is a loaded weapon. And it can hurt many. Here, this, Jesus is not being impetuous with His words or His deeds. No, on this day, Jesus approaches the temple with a clear and thoughtful intent to cleanse the temple. This was not Him blowing up. This was a choreographed, thought-through moment in which He did something intentionally desired by His Heavenly Father. Notice, first of all, a recognition of defilement. Verse number 15 and he came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. What Jesus saw was not a holy place of the worship of God, but he saw a bustling market for wares. This was a place that was distinguished above all the places of the earth for God Himself was to dwell and occupy that place. It was a place that would bear the name of the Most Holy God. It was at its dedication, we're told that God came in to that place in such power and presence that the priests themselves could not enter or to minister in the temple because the cloud of God's presence filled the entire temple. This was holy ground. This was a sacred place. 
And now the court of the Gentiles was being used as nothing more than a marketplace. Exodus 30, Exodus 30 and verse 13, 16, uh, 13 and 16 tells us that a half a shekel was required of every male worshiper that came to that temple over 20 years of age. Many Jews at this time would come from all over. Of course, it would, this was the time uh, from the diaspora. Many, many had been in the northern kingdom plucked up by the Assyrians, taken into captivity, and from there many dispersed all around the, around the world. Same is true with the southern kingdom of Babylon. Many of them dispersed. The whole world, all the nations. Remember on the day of Pentecost, several, several nations were represented because they had all gathered around at that temple. And so these from all over would bring the currency of their country with them. Oftentimes it would be stamped with idols and with, with pagan images on those monies. And so those monies had to be exchanged for them to use them to buy sacrifice. They couldn't take money with idols printed on them and use that to buy animals. So they had to go exchange their money. And it just so happens that, yeah, they would exchange that money, but it seemed like the people down at the temple at those money changers' tables always came out on the better end of the deal. They always didn't get quite enough, uh, quite as much as they should in the exchange. Also, in this courtyard, out of the convenience, animals were kept in the courtyard for sacrifice. History records that in this time, it was not unreasonable to have 250,000 lambs being sacrificed in this one time during the week, during the Passover. Think about it. 250,000 lambs being sacrificed during this time of celebration. The foot traffic of stable workers, the stench and the sound of animals, the shouts of money changers, the din of thousands standing in line made this place, made this sacred place a religious circus. This is not what God intended for that place to be. Jesus recognized it. Coming in, with a, hot, with a heart hot of love for God and His temple and His house would come into such a place and see such defilement and would, would stir up a zeal, a fire within Him to cleanse such a place. But He saw it as defiled. Notice also a reaction of disgust. Verse 16, and he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. He, he took those money changers we saw in the previous verse and, and those who sold us and threw them out. Jesus reacted in righteous indignation. He was horrified that such a place as his father's house was treated with such disrespect. This was sinful, slanderous, and shameful. His love for God and His house welled up within Him and He began to physically remove people, remove this blight from His Father's house. Can you see Jesus? You know, everybody, everybody likes to 
to try to fit Jesus into this 60s hippie mold that, uh, that, that never, never does anything outlandish and is always cool with everybody and never does anything aggressive. He's always super passive. Listen, Jesus was taking these men by the nap of the neck and throwing them out of this courtyard. Can you see him as he topples tables and coins are spread all over the ground and money changers are diving down, scrounging to get their coins? Such lust for money? It was a disgusting scene. Can you see him as he's chasing out the animals and turning over the tables of the profiteers? Although I believe that we can make an application pertaining to our facilities that this place is not to be a circus. I understand that. That this is a, a place of special meeting. Not that it would be much different if we met at our house this this building not necessarily is the church. We are the church. But I do, I do believe we should have some respect of what God has given us, what God has placed here. Uh, I, I, I think there's an application that can be made there. Uh, God, uh, God, God, we want to honor God in this place. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that when it comes to the temple, it's not in Jerusalem. It's right here. God places just as much importance on our hearts that He did at the temple in Jerusalem. He places such an importance on our holiness as He did the holiness of the temple. We may see them as small sins, sins of convenience, even sins of necessity, but God sees them very, very different. I remember years ago I got all sideways with God. Halfway backslid, mad at God because things didn't work out the way I'd wanted to. And I'd let some things of, of pride and different aspects kind of crawl into my life. And I was just kind of going through the motions. And God brought an evangelist by the name of Wilbur Hurt into my home church. And uh, for whatever reason, that night God just peeled back my heart like lifting those leaves. And man showed me all kinds of sin, all kinds of disgusting attitudes and selfishness and pride and rebellion in my own heart. He discovered it, showed it to me. He went into my heart and started flipping over tables, ruining my plans, getting all up in my business. God has a tendency to do that, and I bless the day He did that. It was a turning point in my life, and I will never, I will never forget it. I bless God for that, but I didn't ha it didn't have to come to that. I could have I shorted out all of that process, not had to go through the personal embarrassment within me of going through such a thing. Carrie was sitting next to me. She felt every squirm of me in that service and knew how mad I was after it and I didn't want to deal with nothing. Oh, listen, it could have been dealt with a long time ago by taking heart inventory. Recognition of defilement, a reaction of disgust, a, re a rebuke of displeasure. A rebuke of displeasure. Jesus' response to this house was 
uh, made for one thing and it had turned into something else, something that it never was intended to be. He who, we who've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we bear the distinction of being that temple. And we bear that rebuke, like I spoke about a minute ago. I skipped around here. But that rebuke came to my heart and it comes to our hearts this morning. Take inventory. Does God need to turn over a few tables in your life? If there have been some things that have come in and taken root, some, some hab- habitual sins that you know aren't right, don't suffer the embarrassment of Jesus coming in and having to take you to the outhouse, uh, to the, to the uh, not the outhouse, but to the, uh, to the woodshed, to, to where you are. God punishes His own. He loves His own like children. And he will, he, will, he will punish us. The rebuke of displeasure, the result of, of departure. This one comes in Matthew chapter number 23. This is that same scene, but Matthew gives us a little different shade. Matthew uh, 23 and verse number 30, uh, verse number 38. Look at what he said. Matthew 23, verse number 38. Behold... Your house is left unto you desolate. Now, if you'll go back to Matthew, what did God call it? I mean, Mark's gospel. In Matthew and Mark seven, Mark's eleven seventeen, it said, "Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer?" But in Matthew thirty eight, he says, "Your house is left unto you desolate." It's not his house anymore. It's your house. That building that had once been occupied by God had now been vacated. It's your house now. It's not God's house. The the glory had departed. The power had departed. The crown had fallen. And not and not is uh, not only this place. Uh, and not, and nothing was left but an outward form of religious nature. 2 Timothy describes it this way, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. In other words, this temple had become their house instead of his house. And now all the power, the power is gone. God had departed. God had left. For whatever reason, we need to make sure that we just don't have the form of godliness and have none of God's power on our life. When does this happen? When we are more interested in what we are doing in this place than what God is doing in this place. When I place more emphasis on what I am doing for God than what God is doing in me and through me. That's when it happens. That's when we set up our own little money tables and have our own defilements in in our hearts. And to close, I remember when I was in sixth, sixth grade history class, Mr. Dubay, and every, every lesson, every, or excuse me, every class, at the end of class, he would say, tomorrow we're going to cover chapter so-and-so, section so-and-so through so-and-so. This evening, your assignments, go home and read it. Well, I wasn't much for reading. And I found out something, that the next day, Mr. Dubay would open up those books and he would just start teaching over those things that he told us to read the night before. 
Well, I read it. I mean, really. You know, why am I going to, why am I going to spend? I could be watching the Dukes of Hazzard and the A-Team. I, I don't need to read that. If you're just going to go over it tomorrow, there's no sense in me reading it. Well, one particular day, we come into the class and I sit down ready for him to take the, the section that he told us to read the night before and go over it on the chalkboard. And he says, everybody take out a clean sheet of paper and a pencil. Number it one to ten. I saw Michelle that sit over here had all the confidence in the world, pulled out her paper, found her pencil, ready to go. You know what? She'd been reading the night before. I hadn't been. I had no clue. It's a pop quiz. I hate that feeling. A pop quiz. You're not really prepared for. Well, let us consider this morning a pop quiz. Jesus, through His Word and through my bumbled message, is coming and lifting up leaves. He's coming in and looking at our tables. Looking at what's in our courtyard. What's He finding? Pop quiz, church. In a day of investigation, when Jesus comes in and looks at those leaves, it should have had fruit. I don't care whether it was the season or not. It had leaves. It had foliage. By then it should have had fruit. And it didn't. Is Jesus seeing fruit in our lives? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about spiritual perfection. Don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about spiritual perfection. There are so many denominations that have this thing of sin and, and this sinful nature that we still have that I would, I do not, that that I would not, I do. We have this battle within us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, about sinless perfection. But is there a battle at all? Is there fruit? Is there spiritual desire and a love for Jesus? Whether you can articulate it well or not, whether, whether you come off as the most spiritual person in the world, or whether you do not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your heart. Has it been regenerated, made new? When Jesus comes around and starts lifting up leaves, is there any fruit? Is there anything in there? Any love, true desire to love and please God. Pop quiz. Do heart inspection today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for this section of Scripture and how it's, how it's challenged my heart and how it's caused me to look, look closely at some things that have been rooted there that, God, that I need you to uproot. I, I, I can't. I can't rid myself of this. I need you to come in and do the embarrassing thing of flipping tables and running, grabbing sin by the nap of the neck and chasing it out of my heart. Oh God, come in and do that in our hearts, in my heart. Father, I pray that every person in this room is genuinely born again, regenerated, made new in Jesus. But if that's not the case, may your Holy Spirit enlighten eyes. Show us 
show us our need of a Savior. And let those that are illuminated to that truth run to you, flee to you as fast as humanly possible. God, help us to guard our hearts. For out of it the issues of life come. Let us, let us guard our hearts from sin. Let us, let us always be petitioning you that you might grow fruit through us to your glory. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Let's all stand.